Welcome to the Evolution of Capitalism podcast. My name is Mate Rigo of Yale and U.S. College, and I have the pleasure to talk to Philip Gorski today, who is professor of sociology at Yale University, and this semester he's teaching at Yale and U.S. in Singapore. It is hard to introduce him because, you know, of the long CV, he has authored more than nine books, and among them, The Disciplinary Revolution and the book on the German left. Right, and several articles. And uh, this semester you are teaching a course on populism. So I'm going to ask you about <laughs> populism. <laughs> um, but let's start, with, let's start with the origins of populism. And given that you're both a historian and a sociologist, can we talk about the early modern origins of current populist movements? And here, you know, we've talked about this uh, um, cover of the Spiegel magazine that put Martin Luther there. Um, last year uh, the, for the 500th anniversary of Reformation and, and, and termed Luther as the first Woodburg. And, you know, the article didn't really go that deep in the analysis, but clearly, like, you know, it made some parallels. Do you think these make sense? So I do think that the genealogy of populism goes, goes very deep. And I do think that um, you can find some anticipations of modern populism and Luther's thought, though I'd, go, I'd be a little hesitant to put him, uh, you know, at the font at Orgo of, of modern populism. You know, mm -hmm. he's been blamed for just about everything, of course, including Nazism not, uh, not so long ago. Um, I think ways in which you might think of him as anticipating populism are, um, firstly, uh, the importance uh, that he places on peoplehood. Um, since really this idea of peoplehood and popular sovereignty, that's the governing idea of, of contemporary populism. You know, maybe also anticipates it with some of his uh, apocalyptic rhetoric. Apocalypticism mm -hmm. is a, um, an important feature of some, some populisms. You could also point to Savonarola, who in some ways I think is a, a better early modern avatar of contemporary populism uh, than Luther is in, in many ways. Marian uh, par excellence, um, you know, and possibly also in, in terms of anti-Semitism, right? So most popular, most right-wing populisms uh, have uh, have an other whom they whom they demonize to one degree or another, or multiple others. Um, so some of the some of the ingredients are there in kind of a raw form, but I don't think they've really been fully baked uh, in Luther's time. Mm -hmm. Is it because of society, how society was was uh, structured and formed that that did not enable enable a similar sort of populism that yeah. that we see today? Well, I, I so I think that uh, the, probably the most important cultural precondition for the emergence of populist movements is uh, widespread. Um, um, a legitimacy accorded to the idea of popular sovereignty mm -hmm. and rule, rule by the people. Um, so, uh, so in principle, you could have a populist movement arising, for example, within context within a socialist context. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure, uh, however, whether you really do find this um, in any notable, to any notable degree, outside of um, regimes that. Have uh, have some formal institutions of liberal democracy because in many ways I think populism is also best understood as um, a reaction against the failings 
mm-hmm. and the broken promises of liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want to return to this, but sort of continuing with the themes of origins, the yeah. other time period that is often mentioned when you know when you read articles about Trump, Berlusconi or Viktor Orban is the 1930s and the interwar period and fascism. Do you think these are good parallels? They're definitely good to think with, um, but I think uh, more in terms of under sharpening your sense of how populism is, is different from from fascism. Um, I think two differences I would point to right away. One is that populism tends to be backward looking. It typically mm-hmm. looks, it's a reactionary movement that seeks to recover a golden age. And fascism in both its Italian and uh, German forms and the various other derivatives uh, was a very forward looking mm-hmm. movement that embraced modernity and futurism. So that, that's one important difference. The other really important difference is, I think, the, uh, the very explicit embrace of, of elitism uh, that you find within uh, fascist, fascism and Nazism, right? Uh, kind of elite cadres um, and the acceptance of hierarchy and command. Um, so uh, that, I think, is absent from, from most, most populism. Um, I mean, of course, you have the messianic leader. That's the thing that um, is immediately striking as a parallel. And, and you do, of course, also have uh, some kind of ethnocultural or national or religious other, mm-hmm. um, you know, who uh, becomes a source, a negative source of, of solidarity. So those are two differences, two parallels. Um, and the last thing I would say is that there are historic, and this is the reason why I still think that uh, one shouldn't lose track of the fascist example, is that there are um, instances, for example, Argentina, of populist movements giving rise to explicitly fascist uh, politics. And so I think that is a danger which is, which is always there. Um, and so I think it's not surprising in that regard that some of the most ardent um, populists, Steve Bannon, for example, Trump's former advisor, uh, have a deep fascination mm-hmm. with fascist figures, and so this is again why, although I think uh, this is why I think it's good to think with, but that one shouldn't uh, overdraw the parallels, even though one should be very much aware of the possible dangers mm-hmm. of populism devolving to fascism. Mm-hmm. And how about the two thousand eight two thousand nine financial crisis? Do you see it as sort of a uh, time of origin? Okay, absolutely. I I think um, this is just this is just glaringly obvious um, that, um, you know, it uh, accentuated, um, you know, existing inequalities and in particular um, really fed into another key element of, of most populist narratives, which is the idea of corruption and a corrupt elite. And so, uh, you know, the way in which financial elites, um, mm-hmm. you know, profited handsomely and then uh, got away essentially scot-free. No one was punished or even charged in the United States except for this lackey, uh, uh, this French guy, right? Um, you know, not even an American guy, low-level guy. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt that that really fed into, fed into the narrative and that uh, you know, Trump uh, was speaking very directly to that. 
So I think, in essence, you have to see that um, that uh, you know he was speaking to something which is which is very very real. It's not all it's not all just made up. I mean, the anger is real, and I think that um, progressives um, who want to just uh, dismiss this as, as about solely about white supremacy are making it a little bit too easy for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you think parallels, making parallels between Orban, Erdogan, Putin, and Trump makes sense? Or are these very different types of populists emerging from very different contexts, right? Because Orban is early, right? I mean, you know, we can yeah. say we can go back to 1998 when he first comes to power or 2010 when he establishes his um, system of national cooperation, as he terms it. And then at that point, there were a few articles in the New York Review of Books and the New York Times, but he really seemed like an odd figure and people did not pay that much attention to it. And same with Erdogan. Putin is a different story, right? Uh, but are they similar or are they different? Do you see, do you see, do you see parallels or do you see similarities? So I absolutely think that uh, that Erdogan, Orban, Trump, of course, also Marine Le Pen, builders in the Netherlands, um, and you know various other uh, movements and leaders are are part of a family. I would have also put in uh, you know, speaking from this side of the world, uh, there are certainly populist elements in the Hindu nationalist movement um, in India. There. Uh, I think Duterte in the Philippines mm-hmm. is also very clearly uh, a populist, populist leader. Putin, I think, is is, is a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, again, because he's it's not a uh, against liberal democracy per se uh, to the same degree. But yes, I see them all. The way I would put it is this: that they are all speaking different dialects of the same language, mm-hmm. and that populist language, um, the way I understand it, um, really, uh, so it, the central term is popular sovereignty, but there's also a narrative. And mm-hmm. the narrative is um, a pure people betrayed by a corrupt elite in the service of an undeserving third party mm-hmm. who will be rescued by a messianic leader. And that script you know, it's like a, you know, sort of Grimm's fairy tale. There's all variations of that same base, four or five different regional variations of that same basic plot, but the underlying plot structure and the moral of the story are identical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's very interesting because in what you're saying, victimization really comes to the fore and these narratives are, are really apparent, right? That, you know, the Hungarian, the Russian, the Turkish, the white American southern male population is a victim of this and that, right? Mm-hmm. So you would think that economics would be super important and it, it was important in the in the campaign of Trump. But if we look at the actual economic policies of these populists, we, we don't really see a major mm-hmm. shift away from policies that were termed as neoliberal, right? Um, at least in the case of Orban. Now, with Trump, let's see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 but we don't have the sense that they're turning away from orthodoxies in economics, they're turning away from supporting large corporations, mm-hmm. large banks, from having uh, crownies and tycoons, probably of a different kind. It's, it's probably their allies or family members that they are enriching. But it's, is, is it really a new economics that populist movements have bred? 
the, as, as you say, that the, that the jury is out on that one still. Um, so I think most scholars who work on populism talk about it as being a discourse or a narrative. That's the way I think mm -hmm. about it. Um, as opposed to an ideology or uh, a, a system. Uh, so even though it has an, it's an ism, it's a very different ism than liberalism, say, or mm -hmm. communism, both, both of which um, you know, had serious theoretical, philosophical expositors um, and, uh, and, uh, and people who were able to link some set of basic first principles or some broader vision or philosophy of history to fairly coherent set of policy priorities and, and programs. And you really don't find that with populism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but this is one of the things that's made populism puzzling is that um, you, know, you, you find right-wing versions of it and left-wing versions of it, and you find the same person shifting from a right-wing to a left-wing version of it or radically changing their policies. Uh, Chavez is a, is a textbook mm -hmm. example of this. And so it's very difficult to define populism, uh, at least the populist movements we know in, in, in terms of policy. Um, I mean, that doesn't rule out the possibility that there will emerge some more coherent uh, kind of populist economic agenda. I mean, I do think that um, somebody like Steve Bannon mm -hmm. was trying to articulate that, um, you know, but he's a bit cleverer than Trump is. I don't think we should expect that, that from Trump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe from maybe Orban. I mean, it, it is interesting the way in which uh, so many of these uh, other populist leaders, including Trump and Bannon, have gone to sort of pay homage to Orban uh, over the years and really do look up to him as a kind of a foundational figure in, in their movement. So um, I don't know whether there are recipes uh, to be gleaned from the Hungarian experience about what a populist agenda would look like. Yeah, I mean, at least that's what Orban would want, right? Yeah. To lead the European extreme right. And I don't think it worked with Trump as much, who even refused to meet him, right? He even met the Croatian prime minister, but refused to meet him. We don't know why, right? I mean, Trump is an erratic, he's sort of an empty vessel. So probably he it would be in his interest to meet Orban and learn from him. But definitely Orban is friends with the French and the Italian extreme yeah. right. Um, and, and, and then, you know, and then we come to the question of, you know, Hungary is ultimately a very insignificant country within the European Union. It, it uh, produces 0.8% of the Union's GDP. And then the question is, why should we care, right? Why do we care about small states? And then the other question is, you know, if small states can be that important once they are part of a larger union, such as the European Union, because they can influence you know, the public image of the Union, they can, they are members of the European Parliament, they are sitting in the same faction as Angela Merkel's party. Um, so what does this all mean for populists, right? This sort of new power that the European Union uh, and this new stage that the European Union uh, gives them. And does it mean that we should pay more attention to to smaller states or East European states than, than we had before? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a good it's a good question. Um, you know whether you would want to look at the, some of these smaller states as, as kind of being laboratories or paradigms. I mean, again, I do think that 
as you indicated, that some some populist uh, thinkers and, and leaders certainly have looked at those countries in that way. Um, but whether or not uh, they really in and of themselves represent a threat, say, to the European project, or more just a kind of a, you know, an irritant, sort of like, you know, a kidney stone, if mm-hmm. you like, right? That's probably how Merkel looks at mm-hmm. uh, Obama as a kidney stone, which she's hoping will pass. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, if, if Marine Le Pen had won, mm-hmm. or if uh, Britain had remained part of, um, uh, the, the the EU and UKIP had been a serious party, then I think you would have a very different constellation. But so far, uh, I don't know. I mean, Italy, I, su- I don't follow this as closely. I suppose that would, if, if, if you really did uh, have a truly populist government form there and uh, have some success, then I think you would have a much bigger problem. Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, we're already there with Poland, right? Yeah. With uh, 40 million people. That's I mean, true. Hungary is 10. Romania is sort of, you know, on the edge with sort of 20 million, but a large diaspora right all over. Uh, Bulgaria, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, uh, so it's funny how these sort of post-89 differences between Eastern and Western Europe are becoming relevant again. And I don't know what, you know, obviously on the internet, there are all these maps circulating on Germany, how various statistical data can be really neatly mapped onto, you know, the former border between Eastern and Western um, Germany, such as, you know, the ownership of, you know, car brands, salaries, and all that. I mean, why do you think that matters? Of course. <laughs> um, of course it matters. There, there are very different um, memories, experiences, um, very different, very different institutional legacies, uh, very different um, political economies and levels of economic development, all of this, all of this matters uh, tremendously. Uh, you know, perhaps also in a strange way, the degree to which um, many of the countries in Eastern Europe really were, uh, you know, nobody could get out, mm-hmm. yeah. nobody could get in either, or very few people, yeah. right? I mean, there was internal circulation, but that, that probably does matter too. I think it's probably more of a shock uh, parts of Eastern Europe, um, migration, immigration, more of a shock than even in Western Europe, where it's, uh, of course, creating a lot of political havoc and unrest, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about migration, the migration crisis, because we talked about 2008, so that would be 2015, which definitely played a part in the recent German elections and the, the Hungarian elections. Um, is this... I mean, obviously, it feeds into the grand narrative of populists in terms mm-hmm. of an external danger and the charismatic mm-hmm. leader defending populations from migration, yeah. which is which is really funny, right? Because countries like Hungary have a strong history of migration. In 1956, 200,000 Hungarians have left. East Germans, most of them or many of them came from the former you know, East Prussia and various German territories of the East. So why all this? <laughs> why all this shock about migration now? Right. Or is it because it's the different kind of people who are migrating? Is it because they're sort of darker or because they're Middle Eastern or because they're Muslims? There was, I certainly remember that there was a fair amount of, uh, of resentment and grumbling in Germany about uh, the so-called uh, Russian Germans, right, who came from mm-hmm. the Volga, these kind of older, who hadn't really lived in Germany proper for 500 years. <laughs> um, 
but nonetheless had a right to, to claim citizenship based to on claim blood. <laughs> so there was a fair amount. There was a fair amount of grumbling. That, so, so I do think that absolutely, uh, you know, the difference has a lot to do with, you know, with ethnicity and, and religion. You know, it's not to put too fine a point on, but Islam, right? Um, this is this this makes it feel very different uh, for for a lot of for a lot of Europeans, uh, even if it's. As you say, in Eastern Europe, you know, more, uh, you know, a sort of a non-existent uh, threat uh, as opposed to you know, something that's really real. I do think probably the country where that made the biggest difference was, again, Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany was, until that point, remarkably immune to conservative populism. Um, for various reasons, I think, uh, because A, its commitment to the European project, you know, was a way of sort of buffering its own power and making itself look less threatening geopolitically to, to its neighbors, you know, by hitching itself to Europe. Uh, but also just because of the, you know, the memory of the Holocaust and the Nazi past uh, made it much more difficult uh, to talk kind of xenophobically, um, you know, to, uh, to be against immigration and refugees. Not to say that there weren't people were against those things, of course, uh, but it was a matter of degree, uh, the kind of rhetoric that you would have already heard in France and England, you know, 20 years ago was still impossible um, in, uh, in Germany, and uh, with Merkel's decision to uh, allow in whatever it is, a million plus Syrian refugees, whatever the numbers are, um, that really, that did really fundamentally change the debate, and just because of um, the outsized role of Germany within the European Union uh, probably did really have a quite remarkable effect on the rise of the, the AFD, just in general, and the sort of fade and profile of populism mm -hmm. in the EU. So, yeah, mm -hmm. um, very, very consequential for sure. Um, you know, and also just because of the exacerbated, the already existing resentment of Germany within the EU, mm -hmm. um, feeling that in some sense Jim Merkel unilaterally had, uh, you know, allowed in all, all, of, these, uh, all of these refugees, uh, which I'm sure she thought was, a, was actually a way of um, bolstering Germany's moral stature within the EU, you know, a way of sort of uh, turning the page um, on the Euro crisis and, uh, you know, the Greek debt crisis and the Spanish debt crisis. But in a way, it sort of backfired, at least internally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just in terms of closing, what are the options available for the left and mm -hmm. liberals in mm -hmm. face of populism? And going back to the early modern <laughs> period, or at least yeah. you know, to Max Weber, do does the left or the liberals would need would they would they need a charismatic leader to fight? Populists and to what extent is sort of Weberian charisma different from the charisma of a populist leader? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are two separate questions. Right. <laughs> uh, so first, what the left shouldn't do is more bullet points, more white papers, uh, more facts, more moral superiority. Uh, and that simply plays into populism. Um, I think there has to be uh, a kind of realism about politics um, 
understanding the, the role of narrative, understanding the role of emotion, understanding the role of leadership, um, and also taking seriously at least the, the, the economic anxieties um, that people have. And finally, recognizing that one of the, that creating a, a multi, a sustainable multi-ethnic democracy is hard. Uh, this is not something that's really been tried all that seriously historically. Um, it's not entirely clear how you do it. Uh, what certainly is clear is, uh, by now is that it's not going to be enough to celebrate diversity. Uh, there, have, there have to be some kinds of more unifying narratives that um, allow people uh, to, to feel some degree of commonality, of citizenship, of devotion to the common good, common projects that, um, you know, with people who are quite different from them. And without that, I think uh, the, you know, the sort of liberal left or progressive left are going to be in very, very serious trouble. Right. Well, not on this happy note, but Philip Gorski, thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you.